The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. That's already a bit intimidating, to say the least. So, and in Job is a book, again, about who has wisdom. You know, do Job's friends, so-called friends, do they really know what's going on? Does Job understand what's going on? And uh, it takes wisdom to understand that well, where is wisdom? If you search in the minds, you can't get it. And, and there's this um, Job's uh, expressions of uh, uh, frustration that uh, he can't understand. So uh, here is wisdom going back to creation, God's wisdom. So you can see a sort of linkage and then it, it seems uh, that, uh, for, as this would be point uh, D, the recital in Psalm 78.2, which goes back to Moses, is now heightened or extended, apparently, to include the whole scope of redemptive history. In fact, you might say creational history. In other words, before redemption was necessary because of the fall. So, you know, you're now, as it were, you're not going to tell the story of Israel from Moses onward. You're going to tell the story of the Bible from creation onward, apparently. Matthew is sort of heightening the thing. Now, you can see, right, that already that this is not the business of an error or some uh, willful misinterpretation of Psalm 78, but it's, it's saying, I'm going to show you something that's built on Psalm 78 and yet maybe surpasses what is literally said in Psalm 78. So, you know, a quotation like this is not simply, this is what the passage means straight out, but this is what it implies. This is how you can link it up with the rest of Scripture. See? So I think that gives you a lot of space to say that what Matthew is doing is quite legitimate, although and maybe quite profound. <laughs> Right, but not something then that, that we sort of just wave our hands and say, as a critic, critic might, and say that uh, he doesn't know what he's doing. And uh, you know, even some evangelicals, I think, are saying, well, he's inspired, right? And he did it, but we can't do it. But he's thinking through something in the light of Christ's coming and in the light of the previous revelation, and he is weaving some things together. That's what I think is a better way of thinking of it. All right, now points E under all this in Matthew is, is the text then merely saying that things, the things now revealed in Christ, Christ it's certainly claiming that things are being revealed. I will, uh, I will, what is the language that Matthew uses in the uh, Matthew 35? I will utter things. I will make known things then, is the implication. Is he now saying that Jesus will reveal things that were hidden from the time of creation onwards? And that is, at least theoretically, a possible meaning. But I think there are two um, 
problems with it, as at least as the, if that's the only thing that he's saying. The first problem is that it really wouldn't be very interesting. Anything, if you have a high doctrine of God, which I think the Old Testament already has, then God knows from the beginning what he will do, what he's planned. And anything that is not already disclosed in the, New, in the Old Testament and that is now being disclosed in the New Testament would be something that had been hidden and that now its time has come and it's no longer hidden. And it would have been hidden from the foundation of the world. So anything that is freshly revealed is by implication simply of the doctrine of God, something that has been hidden from the foundation of the world. That's true, but it's not very significant because it's, you're saying something that is true of anything that is freshly revealed. The second problem with this interpretation is that if you look at the parallel with Psalm 78.2, in Psalm 78.2, the temporal phrase, phrase about time, from of old, indicates not simply the date of origin of the wisdom, but rather the contents in which the secret thing is hidden. I'm not sure I'm making myself clear. But what Psalm 78 says is basically, here you have a history of Israel. And it dates from Moses to David. And in this history of Israel, there are hidden certain things which now I want you to understand. Lessons about knowing God and not rebelling, and perhaps other things as well. But, all right? Now, what is hidden has been hidden from the foundation of the world, like all things hidden. But that isn't Psalm 78's point. It's that it's been hidden from the time that these things happened, right? The events, the dating is the dating of the events, not the dating of how long have these things been hidden, but the dating of the events, the matter in which the hiding was done. Now, if you take that parallel and apply it over to what Matthew is doing, the conclusion would be, not that, that the point is not that the things have been hidden since the foundation of the world, but they've been hidden in the creation. That's rather a different meaning, isn't it? Ever since, you see, ever since the events of Moses, there have been things to learn there that have been hidden. Ever since the events of creation, there have been things hidden there. That would be the parallel, right? You follow? Is that the meaning then? There is something hidden in creation. Now, all that is a maybe, but there is one more thing to note, and that is the connection, possible connection with Proverbs 8.23, which I already alluded to. And in fact, this is reinforced by Psalm 78.1-3. Psalm 78.1-3 has a kind of wisdom atmosphere. There are, of course, wisdom psalms. You know, Psalm 1 being one of them, I call on you to meditate on God's law, Psalm 119, reflective psalms. They're not the heights of, dis uh, of emotional exaltation. They're not the depths of despair. They're rather even emotionally in some way, except that they call for depth in another dimension, if you will, meditation on what? On whatever it is, the topic, in this case, the history of Israel. So this is like a wisdom psalm, and of course it begins, the psalm begins in verse 1, which I didn't even read. I'm sorry for that. 
Oh, my people, hear my teaching. Does that sound like Proverbs? My son, right? Listen to what I have to say, right? Listen to my instruction. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in mushalim, right? Which is another wisdom word. I will utter hidden things from a, uh, things from of old. And of course, the uh, plea of Proverbs is to understand wisdom from life. So there is this wisdom atmosphere. And the wisdom atmosphere of the ancient world was that the oldest wisdom is the best. You know, that's one of the afflictions of modernity is the idea of progress, right? Everything that is old-fashioned is bad, <laughs> right? Well, but the ancients, it's the, it's the other way around. The oldest wisdom is the best, and the wisdom involved in creation itself, by implication, would plumb the very depths of the ultimate wisdom, you see, and that's doubtless is part of the implication in this dialogue between God and Job as well, or monologue, because Job doesn't really have anything to say. The more ancient the wisdom, the more comprehensive. Therefore, also, I think this suggests that there is an organic link, indeed, as Matthew is already trying to establish, right? There is, the whole issue is the issue of wisdom. And that Psalm 80, 78 is calling for wisdom, and that Matthew is saying there is even a deeper wisdom than this. Which Psalm 78 indirectly looks forward to? How so? Because there's more to be said, you see, because the Old Testament is in progress and is incomplete. So it looks forward to an era where wisdom will be put on people's hearts, for example, right? Where there will no longer be this rebellion because the law of God is written on their heart. That's Jeremiah 31 in the New Covenant. So you can see how Matthew is not so far off. Uh, well, not, not off at all, but <laughs> I should say, but, but that basically it doesn't take that many steps to see, the, see that Matthew uh, is uh, right in seeing a prophetic thrust indirectly. All right, now, all that, there is then, I think, even in the original context of Psalm 78, some tendency for the reader to pick up an allusion to the subject matter of the parables and the subject matter. Well, in Psalm 78, too, the subject matter is at the Exodus, right, from of old in Jesus' parable. Parables, well, it's wisdom in, in Proverbs, but in Jesus' parables, the subject matter is what? Creation, seeds, sheep, treasures buried, light, human nature also, right? And sometimes fallen human nature, but a good deal of the observations about human nature in the parables are, are human nature without really dwelling strongly on the fall or not, right? There's stories about people and what they do. What do the parables do? In effect, Jesus talks about the meaning of redemption, the kingdom of God, eschatological redemption, by means of analogies taken from creation, either the subhuman world, plants, sheep, right? And sometimes the human world, the world of human action, um, and thereby shows things, quote, hidden in creation. Well, I've set you up, and maybe that isn't altogether plausible, but I want, you, I want to bring to bear another passage at this point, Colossians 1, 16 to 17. Uh, Colossians 1, 15, he is, 
that is Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That, that firstborn being defined as preeminence. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, now notice the shift. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now verse 18 focusing on redemption, 18 and 19. Well, uh, 20 as well, to reconcile to himself all things through him. Okay? But 15 through 17 are about creation, and these two things have parallels, obviously, between them. Christ's role in creation is, in certain respects, analogous to and even the foundation for his preeminent role in redemption and reconciliation. And I would press that and say that Colossians invites us to show, to understand that there's an organic unity between the two. Now go back to the parables and let me say it this way. Christ, Jesus' speech shows the wisdom of one who is mediator of redemption and who is mediator of creation that he unites these two mediatorial roles in one person so that if all things are summed up in him, both in creation and redemption, there will naturally be analogies between creation and redemption, which analogies he, as the possessor of the wisdom of God, is going to reveal. Colossians 2.3 in whom, that is in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, what I'm getting at is that I think it's a little deeper, or maybe a lot deeper, than saying Jesus just thought of some convenient preaching illustrations. Yes, they were convenient illustrations, but why were they convenient? Because they had been designed to be convenient. <laughs> From the foundation of the world, they had been designed to be convenient. And now, you know, the, the, the thing is lurking just around the corner to say that redemption is inherent in creation, and I don't want to say that. I'm not going to go the Bardian direction to identify creation and redemption, which confuses everything, muddles everything up. We need to say creation was good and the fall was bad and distinguish between those, okay, right? So we keep our history right. And yet... If there is not only a fall, but there is to be redemption from the fall, then redemption takes hold of the effects of the fall and takes hold of the creation on which those fallen effects have done their damage, you see, so that there is still reference back to creation. And it is still right to think then in terms of an organic relationship between the realities of creation and redemption. All right, now, having said that, one more point. Three, similarities and patterns of Psalm 78 and the parables. Note the following similarities, some of which we've already mentioned. A, Psalm 78 is a recital of Israel's unfaithfulness, preeminently. And yet, the coming of God's kingdom, may I speak so, in the midst of that unfaithfulness. The Psalm ends with David. 
and uh, comes to a bit of a rest and a sense of a preliminary solution after all these acts of unfaithfulness uh, he beat back his enemies verse 66 he rejected the tents of Joseph he chose the tribe of Judah he built his sanctuary this is 69 like the heights like the earth that he has established forever he chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens from tending the sheep he brought him to be the shepherd of people his people Jacob and Israel's inheritance and David shepherded them with integrity of heart with skillful hands he led them that's the last thing now of course you know you know more of the story you know it wasn't all good David himself sinned and so on but you see that's one of the respects in which this psalm may again be prophetic of saying okay you know that it didn't that wasn't an ultimate solution but can't you see there has to be an ultimate solution like that except better than David himself personally turned out to be so I speak of the coming of God's kingdom now in the language developing in the intertestamental period primarily the language of the kingdom of God is used almost more and more of the kingdom of God eschatologically though it continues actually there are there are, for instance if you become a convert to Judaism then you take on you the yoke of God's kingdom well it's the yoke of the law you see you're submitting to God's rule in the law so there that sense too but what I want you to see is not the language the specific vocabulary of the kingdom but David is it's this ruler picture you see and it's the coming of an establishment of God's rule that is promising in some respects to free Israel from this cycle of rebellion so it anticipates that great coming of God's kingdom all right so Psalm 78 a recital of Israel's unfaithfulness and yet in spite of that the coming of God's kingdom in the midst of that unfaithfulness second oh do you see the parallel right what are the parables some of them are like a recital of Israel's unfaithfulness the parable of the wicked tenants surely you know preeminently rejecting one prophet after another and the recital and the coming of God's kingdom which is of course the Sun comes right it's the coming of God's kingdom even in the midst of that unfaithfulness what about the parable of the sower what about all these soils that don't yield fruit you see that's Israel's unfaithfulness at the same time God's kingdom coming in the midst of that so there are parables parallels there second point and uh, this is my uh, point B Psalm 78 recites Israel's response to the word and at the same time it is a word of God calling forth responses of blessing and curse and likewise the parables you see many of them are stories about that are directed Israel's response the unfruitful fig tree in the middle of the vineyard for instance as well not to mention the parable of the sower as again about Israel's response and yet at the same time they are the word of God see this recital discloses the significance of what happened in meditative depth that seems to be true of the parables and D Genesis 1 itself has some of this category that is it is a recital of God's word and the response to that word let there be light and there is light and itself is the word of God 
and it discloses the significance of what happened, right? It's not only saying this happened, this happened, but God's evaluation of it and the glory of God that's displayed in it. And as we've already said, finally, point five, some parables at least draw a relation between creation as story and redemption as the meaning of the story, right? The story operates on two levels. Here's a seed growing. That's a creational story. A story about a thing in creation that God has made. And then the meaning of the story is redemptive, right? About God's kingdom growing. And that that structure, I now suggest, is based on a creation, redemption, consummation, redemptive history. Now, look back at the parable of the sower in the light of this comment in Matthew 13.35. If we believe the implications of Matthew 13.35, it seems to me that the implication is there is a mystery involved in sowing and growth, right? Just like there is a mystery involved in the coming out of Egypt and the rebellion of the people in the wilderness, which Psalm 78 recites, so there is a mystery hidden from the creation of the world in the process of sowing and growth, as illustrated in the parable of the sower. This mystery was hidden from the foundation of the world, and uh, let me follow here. Yeah, this is capital F. Sorry, I haven't kept you up. Second look at the parable of the sower, okay? Point one, there is this mystery hidden from the foundation of the world about sowing and growth. Second, the mystery of reproductive seed is part of the created order. Genesis 1, 11 to 12. God sent, uttered a specific word that is the foundation for uh, plant reproduction. Uh, about trees, you know, that let the earth bring forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own times, and trees bearing fruit, which is their seed each according to its kind. Right? The idea being that they would have this power of growth and reproduction founded in the word of God. So there is this uh, word of God that um, empowers the reproductive seed. And the message in Genesis, the context in Genesis, man as king is to dominate and care for and lead forward this, these powers granted by the word of God. Uh, he's to cultivate and so on, do what it takes right, to lead these forward to the consummation. Genesis 1, 28 to 29, fill the earth and subdue it, the implication being there will be a time when it is filled and there will be a time when it is subdued, and that will be the consummation. The argument, I accept it from Klein and others, eschatology is deeper and earlier than redemption. That is, there was a program there even before the fall. Man himself is to be fruitful, that is to multiply. And that is analogous to the fruitfulness and multiplication of seed, isn't it? Yes. Well, yeah, what's hidden at the foundation is manifest in the eschaton, right? So at least in that general sense. I'm not sure what more you're getting at besides that. But let me complete this development, and then maybe we'll take our break. Okay, so man is to be fruitful. The exercise of dominion includes presumably agricultural development, which we actually we see, although it's primarily after the fall, but Genesis 2, 15 to, talks about tilling the garden and keeping it. Genesis 4, 2, Cain is a tiller of the soil. That's the line of the seed of the serpent, as it were. So, but why, 
why do we expect the ground to be fruitful? Why does that happen? Well, it's only through the foundation in the decree of God, the creational decree. There's an ultimate mystery to that, you know, and the scientists who investigate it nowadays, you know, they'll claim to explain everything, but the one thing they don't explain is why is there a law at all, right? And the law is there by the power of God. <laughs> okay, that's point, two, point uh, two under this, point three. In the new creation, that is in redemptive, redemption, conceived of as recreation or new creation, there is growth both true and false, and that's part of the point of the parable of the sower, surely. And this growth also, this growth in the new creation, is founded in a mystery of the Word of God, which has recreative power. In other words, in the original creation, God's Word is behind the creative power that you see in seeds. In the new creation of redemptive order, there is the Word of God with recreative power. Point four, if Jesus is the sower par excellence, sure, Paul, the apostles, every preacher of the word is in some sense a sower. But Jesus is the preeminent sower. He is the last Adam who already exercises dominion over the new creation. And this dominion is established by what? By his uttering creative word of God. So, point five, and this is where I wanted to go. In its broadest scope, I would suggest that the parable of the sower is about the creative word of God. I promised I would get there, remember. Not simply redemptive word, the word of the gospel, although that's the most immediate focus, but the creative word of God, which engenders response throughout all ages, right? And this background in Psalm 78 then comes to bear and you think, well, there is a general principle about the word of God and the response to it, right? That is there. In throughout Israelite history and that uh, the psalm is calling on people to learn wisdom from that, uh, that uh, process. Throughout the ages there is the creative word of God and it calls for response and it brings forth by its own power brings forth a response both from the total human race. I mean think about it right See, not everybody receives the gospel verbally, but everybody receives general revelation, right? And that calls for a response. So you see, again, I'm broadening out and saying the word of God in the broadest sense calls for a response from the whole human race in relation to the world, of course, because we are responsible creatures living in an environment. And it calls for a response from the subhuman creation. That is, God utters words addressed to the subhuman creation and they that subhuman creation responds by obeying by reproducing if the word of god is directed to seeds they respond by reproducing some of them right but not all of them again different responses the ultimate fruit is the consummation is the new heavens and the new earth which is brought forth in answer to the prophetic word of God, which says, Behold, I great new heavens and new earth. So you have a word of God already in motion, as it were, to which the response will be the new heaven and new earth. Now, what I'm saying is, in fact, I believe, and Colossians 1 being my basis, 
there, there is at a deep level an organic relation between creation and redemption to which the response will be the new heaven and new earth. Now what I'm saying is, in fact, I believe, in Colossians 1 being my basis, that there is at a deep level an organic relation between creation and redemption, and then also between redemptive, specifically redemptive word of the gospel, and, and this issue of variant responses, right? Believing and unbelieving. And God's word, even it's addressed to the subhuman creation, and the response that that brings forth, and brings forth ultimately on a cosmic level of scope with the coming of the new creation. Remember now that the parable in its narrowest scope, that's the broadest scope, and I've got this, I'll draw the little diagram again. Got this draw diagram where we started with saying it's a parable about parables, right? And it's a parable uh, about Jesus' ministry and Jesus' teaching, okay? And then as, as an apex of that, the crucifixion and the resurrection, and then a parable uh, about the gospel, right? The ministry in Acts and beyond. And the, lar the largest circle being the parable of the creative word of God that would encompass the gospel, but also look cosmically and say the word of God calls forth response at the level of the entire cosmos. The narrowest level here is it's a parable about itself, right? It has this chasing its own tail character because uh, the, what the disciples do by going to ask Jesus is itself an acting out of the parable. And its self-reference points, as I observe, to the utterer of the parable, namely Jesus, as the one who alone can unveil the mystery of its meaning, and more broadly, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now, what well, we got at one level, you see, here's parable of itself here, right? We've got Jesus as the utterer, and at the most, the broadest level, we've got God the creator and consummator, capital C and consummator. And there's organic unity, which presupposes the deity of Christ. I think that's behind this, but of course it's not ready to be revealed out in the open. Jesus utters a word about seed, a word which on the surface is a word of God about the first creation, right? And Jesus utters a word about the word of God as recreational about the gospel and he is mediator of creation and recreation. So I think then he is the source of the word which is both creational and recreational. Now where you get this explicit I think is John 1, 1 to 5. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now sure I'm collapsing a couple of things there because Jesus pictured himself as the sower of the word, right? But there's an identity functionally between the um, 
the role of the the sower and the role of the role of the seed itself, and then the level of of a final ontology, the final word of God is itself Christ. Okay, so I think underneath the parable is the assumption of Jesus' deity, and you might even say the parable is a veiled proclamation of Jesus' deity, although at this point I think it is indeed veiled. But I would suggest it is also a veiled proclamation of his representative humanity because I did this thing about the last Adam, right? Adam has a particular role in bringing the creation to its consummation by exercising his dominion and care for the garden and eventually for the whole world. And that role is taken by Jesus. Now, it's important to insist that this parable speaks to people where they are, right? So that it's capable of addressing ordinary people without one necessarily seeing into all the ramifications. But the end point is not to leave people where they are. But it's not only to let them see the kingdom of God differently, but it's to let them see the activity of sowing differently. And for an agricultural people, that's significant, right? It's to see your work differently, to see your endemic tasks differently, because they are now related to the kingdom. You think that's far-fetched? I don't think it's far-fetched. <laughs> because basically the, the implications of the kingdom of God are comprehensive. So put it another way. Well, now this is a different point. Have I given the full meaning of this parable? I don't think so. I think that the full, and you, if you follow me, you probably may, may see why. I think that this fullness of meaning of the parable will be revealed only at the consummation, right? That's consistent to say, Right, we've got a reintegration of creation and redemption and the consummation in the fullest way. But let's put it another way. The word of God is correlative with the kingship of God. Every word is a word of power, and every exercise of power is meaningful for God. So it can be expressed verbally, and the scripture does picture God as doing all his acts by speaking. Hence, it ought to be possible to make analogous statements about the kingdom of God and about Jesus' miracles, his miraculous acts, that there is a seminal quality to those acts. Now, suddenly I'm going over into the miracles, and we're going to have to defer part of that. Okay, so I don't want to get into that, but in a sense, you can probably see up. what I'm going to do about parables, I'm going to, with certain changes, we're going to think about miracles eventually because those are kingdom acts, aren't they? And since the kingship or sovereignty of God is central to all of scripture, I believe that our meditations on parables have potential for altering our perspective on all of scripture, which doesn't mean, right, we avoid saying we flatten scripture out so that it is all allegory, right, so that it's all parable, it's all one genre. That is to be avoided, but it is all the word of God, right? And does that mean that it all has some seminal qualities to it? In other words, there's always more to be learned, right? And there's always, you can always be trapped by it and cursed by pride and unbelief. 
So my final point on this, I've lost count of my, but uh, it's under F basically, is don't have confidence in yourself. If I am right, or even partly right, in my views about these parables, the parables are two-edged. They can blind the proud and the autonomous as well as enlighten the teachable. And people can indeed grasp fragments of the truth and still in the end be as wrong as wrong can be. And I mean, you can see that with the uh, scribes and Pharisees' reaction to the parable of the wicked tenants. They perceived that he told this parable against them, but it didn't change their minds. It just provoked them further. So the message of the parables of this or the genre of parables is come in humility. And I think that um, my own pride obviously has gone into my own work on parables, so you've got to take that <laughs> critically as well and not just uh, assume that that's the final word. We have confidence in God, however, right? We are not to have confidence in ourselves, either in yourself or in myself, but confidence in God and lack of autonomous confidence. And that breeds, I think, creative risk-taking of a certain kind. That is, we should be willing to probe the soundness of received theology, not in pride, not in autonomy. You hear that part. But with a sense that God has always more to teach, right? And to probe that soundness of received theology not only once in a lifetime, but whenever scripture leads that way. Now that's a fine-tuned balance, isn't it, right? And we all have our besetting sins, and I've been around in life long enough to see people who are always after something new, right? And to whom the message needs to be calmed down and beware of tickling fancies with something new. For a typical Westminster graduate, maybe the message has to be another way, right? Because we, if you're anything like me, when I left the seminary, and to a certain extent even now, I'm so overwhelmed with the greatness of what I learned and what, you know, godly men from previous generations, not simply the generation of teachers, but their teachers and, you know, the entire tradition. So overwhelming and so great and so rich that one develops um, a kind of holy respect for it. And, and you see, I want to say there is, there is a proper element of respect because we recognize, even in human voices, the word of God. We recognize the wisdom of God coming. And yet that always is to be resubjected to scripture, you see. So it's a challenge for every one of us, basically, to say that the task in this life is never ending, right? That there is, there is this depth to scripture and to the word of God that we never exhaust. Okay, one more point and then we'll take our break. It's a little late, I know. Philip B. Payne has an article, which I think is in your bibliography, entitled, Jesus' Implicit Claim to Deity in His Parables. Now, he doesn't take the same rather uh, elaborate route that I took, but this is in Trinity Journal, Volume 2 of the new series. Payne, here's, the, here's Payne's argument. 
Payne notes that Jesus depicts himself in many parables in terms which in the Old Testament apply to God. The sower, Ezekiel 17, 23, I didn't even mention that, but that is a God, uh, that is a kind of allegory in Ezekiel 17 where God is the sower. The director of the harvest, Joel 3.13, Malachi 4.1-2. The rock, the shepherd, bridegroom. Am I going too fast for you? Rock, shepherd, bridegroom. Father, giver of forgiveness. And of course, he is accused about that. But even his enemies catch on. Who, who but uh, God forgives sins. Vineyard owner, Lord, and king. So I think Payne has is, is put his finger on something a little more obvious, but uh, still uh, very much along the lines of what I have been trying to uh, explore. Okay, let's take a five-minute break. Okay, we've had the um, second look at the parable of the sower. Uh, G, uh, really, I covered that. Qualifications in my remarks on parables, I didn't warn you that's what it was. But basically, it is to say that I'm subject to the same afflictions as everybody else. Um, and so uh, what I have got is to present to you my struggle, which is out of my imperfection. Um, but, but I think, I hope if I've conveyed anything, it is that, that the parables are an ongoing challenge. It's not something where, okay, I came to seminary, get the answers, now I've got the answers, boom, I'm off, right? <laughs> But it's an ongoing, it's, it's ongoing communion with Christ, communion with Christ in a world of sin where sin contaminates our own hearts, and therefore, you know, we experience struggle of, and this whole phenomenon of growth and of unfruitfulness as well. So, anyway, having said that, and having said, you see, that's in a way to say, I can't give you a bunch of rules anymore. <laughs> I can't. That would falsify what I see the parables as doing. That you're confronting God, and you can't put that in a neat little box. But nevertheless, I will give you H guideline maxims for interpreting Jesus' parables. Now, maxims are things that you know they're like proverbs, right? <laughs> they they may have exceptions. They're sort of gesturing in the direction of this is something to think about and keep in mind but it's not something that is automatic. So that's the kind of thing that I propose for these. And again, there are things, I'm not the, the sort of the last uh, word on wisdom, but some of these I think you'll admit are uh, reasonable and others you do with as you wish. All right, so under this we will have, I've got about, oh, something like eight or ten maxims, and uh, for convenience, I've grouped them under some subcategories so that grouping together things that are somewhat related, all right? And the first of these subcategories is point one, then. Oh, uh, you've got it there. Sorry, I see. Contextual interpretation, and then A, B, C, D, and so on, okay? You see that on your outline already. A, then, that the interpretation of any one parable that we do should be consistent with the other teachings of Jesus. And by consistent, I don't just mean logically consistent, that it doesn't violate, you know, in other words, that it doesn't contradict an explicit teaching of Jesus. Well, it ought not to contradict any teaching of Scripture anywhere in Scripture, right? 
that's sort of minimal. What I have in mind is a little bit different. That is, that it ought to fit in with the thrust of Jesus' teaching in other places. It ought to make sense as complementary. You see, it ought to be then, given that Jesus taught in such and such ways, and now you come to this parable, what do you think the parable is about? See? Now that's circular, you can say. Well, you can say because you say, well, yeah, but to do that, I've got to interpret all the other parables first and then come to this one, right? And then decide and round, round. Yes, but that's the way learning is, <laughs> right? That we're going round, round our whole life. It's the Van Til's circle and so on. <laughs> it, isn't a, it isn't a vicious circle, but it just means that you improve. The more you understand the other parables, the more you understand this one parable. And as I think I indicated, I think that some parables are easier than others. Some parables are explicitly interpreted, and that gives us at least some beginnings, right, with respect to the other parables. And again, you can see how the world of critical scholarship that by and large rejected the interpretations as secondary, that's already asking to be cursed, right? Because then you don't have the starting point, or not nearly as much starting point, to get you going that will help you with the other parables that are, don't have maybe an explicit interpretation. I would suggest then that this prevents, for instance, a moralistic interpretation of kingdom parables. Euliker, the one-point artist of old, his interpretations were tended to be just general principles about life, moralistic. And even critical scholarship, although it clung to the idea of single point, it didn't follow Euliker completely there, and people did begin to see that the kingdom parables were not simply moral lessons. There are lessons about the kingdom of God. There are lessons about what God is doing in the world as well as your response. Now, the response element is there, all right. Uh, but this is especially true, I believe, of the parable of the sower and other interpreted parables that we use the interpretation and we use the parables that we begin to understand their meaning with respect to others. Now, I think the average Christian already does this instinctively, right? So you're, you're not that bad off where you are, <laughs> so what I want to say, partly. But that historical criticism, again, has given us a wrong footing by, you know, tending to overreact. Of course, you know, tradition, tradition always has to be criticized, right? So just because you've been taught that the parables mean thus and so doesn't mean that ought not to be critically inspected. But to just completely stand back from everything you learned is not the solution either. All right, second uh, point is B, then, Jesus' use of other parables is my interpretation of a particular parable consistent with Jesus' use of the parabolic mode? So it's not just Jesus' teaching more broadly, but particularly the fashion in which parables tend to convey that teaching. For instance, there are a number of parables that seem to focus at least partly on the gradualness of the kingdom the coming of God's dominion, parables of growth, right? And actually, there are a number of parables of growth in, say, uh, Mark 4, put right together, may have been presented <laughs> together even in Jesus' uh, ministry. But certainly, that allows some degree of clue. And, uh, for instance, that it is a time of crisis for Israel. There are several parables. Now, they may, again, do several things, but 
uh, more than one parable seems to be occupied, partly at least, with this. Or to bring the hearers to judge themselves. And in this connection, I would turn to Jeremias, finally. I've asked you to read something of Jeremias. Jeremias, I guess, has become a little bit out of date, and people have gone on to all these literary interpretations of parables. That's a sort of new thing, but a literary interpretation of parables may mean an interpretation which uproots them from the historical context. And again, that's asking for trouble, right? Because you no longer interpret them against the background of Jesus' public ministry. So in some ways, Jeremias, who is a conservative critic, well, in some ways conservative, he thought that you could recover a historical core to what Jesus was teaching. And uh, he uh, discerns several main um, points that are made that you encounter in several parables. And I've got a list of them for your benefit. I don't agree with all of them. I don't agree this is a complete solution or anything like that. But it's something to watch for. Any Many of these, I think, uh, are valid as emphases in some of the parables. Here they are, and I'll go slow so you can take them down. You could get them out of Jeremias' book, but you'd have to sort of thumb through a lot of pages. Uh, pages 115 to 230 in Jeremias is where this comes from. Now is the day of salvation. God's mercy for sinner, for sinners. I think what he has in mind there is, for instance, the parable, uh, parables of lost things. The great assurance, that's what he calls it. Uh, he's thinking, I think, of the mustard seed parable, the sower, and the unjust judge. Now, this is sort of a parenthesis, uh, and maybe if you're working on a computer, you want to leave some space for the rest of the list. But Jeremias is definitely an adherent to the one-point theory. So um, there, there's some problems of that kind. But, but for instance, the, the mustard seed parable, I'd say one of the points is the small beginning. Jeremias reads it, for whatever reasons, as a big ending. Yeah, definitely that the end will come, even if the beginnings are small. So can you really leave that out? So the great assurance, I don't think, is, is a good summary of the entirety of the implications of the mustard seed parable. Not that you, one could exhaust those, but it's a little one-sided. But be that as it may, and the sower, again, it's not simply the assurance of the harvest, but what about these unfruitful soils? Okay, the great assurance is uh, the next one. And then the imminence of catastrophe. Jeremias thinks the eye is the lamp is part of that. And there, I can see that, although I think the point may be similar to the parable of the sower. Make sure that you're not receiving the word of God for curse. The story of the rich fool is one such, and that's more obvious, I think, that Jeremias is on to something there. It may be too late. Jeremias' idea, the ten virgins or the great supper. Well, admission to the kingdom is, you know, an issue there. The challenge of the hour, the unjust steward. Realized discipleship. What he means by that is pictures of, the, of a, a, a discipleship as it should be. The treasure in the field and the good Samaritan. The via dolorosa and the exaltation of the son of, son of man is parables basically predicting Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. The consummation, parabolic actions, well, that's sort of a different character. 
category. I would add to these, not, necessar not necessarily as separate categories of parables, but as elements to look for, maybe in some of the same groups of parables, is the following, the demands of discipleship, delay. Right, so the the nobleman goes away into a far country, right, and there's this delay, and the, some of the wicked servants are saying, the "Master's delayed in coming and begin to eat and drink." Expectation reversal, that's a frequent device. The Good Samaritan has that because it's told the Jews, "The kingdom is not coming in the way you expect." That's an element in quite a few parables, I think. Okay, so the point then is that there are some recurrent themes. And seeing the themes a few times in parables where you're pretty sure you're there, there may help you with the next parable. C, what could the audience have understood? Your interpretation of the parable, I would suggest, should be consistent with the meaning that could be arrived at by A, Jesus hearers during his earthly life, and B, the evangelist's hearers. Now, those are two different things, right? But C, there is the possibility of an expanded meaning after the resurrection of Christ. Matthew 13, 31 to 32 hints at this with the, you know, the idea that to you is revealed the secrets. John 16, 25, I've said all this to you in figures. The hour is coming when I no longer speak to you in figures to tell you plainly of the Father. So... This is, again, a delicate balance because you, we want to say that the parables were intelligible to a degree, at least, even to the original hearers, and that, that, that our interpretation ought not to lose connection with that meaning, but that there may be expansions in terms of we can see more after the fact. Now, I think this may already be enough to cut off certain things. Jericho, for instance, according to Augustine's interpretation of the Good Samaritan parable, means mortality. Well, you know, is that the kind of thing? If you're, on, if you're, in, if you're in a long centuries long tradition of interpreting every detail in an allegorical manner, that makes sense, but is it reasonable to push that tradition back into the first century, into either Jesus' audience, pretty clearly not. They're not going to see it that way. Or, this is trickier, Luke's audience, right? Because then you say, well, you know, if they'd been taught to interpret all these allegorically, but I'm saying, yeah, there's the parables are allegories, many of them, but that doesn't mean every detail, you see. So it's different from, from it's, it's not... You can't just appeal to the fact that the early church automatically assumed this. They had been taught the interpretations, such as were given, but those just say that the parables are allegories, not that every uh, detail, like Jericho, <clears throat> um, has a distinct uh, symbolic meaning. Okay, so that, I think, can help us. And then, D, redemptive historical perspective. Ritterboss, page 123 says in the coming of the kingdom, rather, rather than being merely general principles, this is the thought, rather they, the parables, are very closely connected with the special 
redemptive historical character of Jesus' mission and preaching. Now, that's what I've been trying to get at and haven't been able to say nearly as elegantly. <laughs> I'll read it again for you. You can look it up if you want the full context. Rather, they are very closely connected with the special redemptive historical character of Jesus' mission and preaching. See, and I've already been saying, look at what is happening in Jesus' public ministry. And Redobos is pressing that same direction. Dodd, page 26, we must look first not to the field of general principles, but to the particular setting in which they were delivered. Okay, so, so much then for contextual elements. And I haven't argued strongly for, for uh, these maxims. Why are they valid? I think you can see A and B make sense simply in terms of meaning depends on context, right? D makes sense. The context is a redemptive historical one, right? And for the evangelist, certainly that is true. Uh, and by inference, true for Jesus himself. And then C, what could the audience have understood is again a grammatical historical principle. So those that follow, um, I think, as reasonable. Point two then is typical strategies in parables. Now this is picking up in a sense of on 1B, all right, and expanding 1B a little bit to say what are things to look for. Here are some. A, the principal actor of a parable often stands for God, or rather is a model for God's action. For, um, let me quote here a little bit. This is the coming of the kingdom, page 25. The manifestation of the kingdom of heaven cannot be conceived as an impersonal metaphysical event, but as the coming of God himself as king. This conception is borne out by a whole series of parables about the kingdom of God. A definite person always stands in the center of these parables, and his action demonstrates the meaning of the kingdom. This person is often no other than God or the Son acting in his name and according to his instruction. Thus, e.g., in the parable of the man who had sowed good seed in his field, that's not the parable of the sower. It's the one where he finds weeds growing up. Matthew 13, 24 and following, of the king who would take account of his servants, Matthew 18, 23 and following, of the man who hired laborers in his vineyard, Matthew 20, verse 1 and following, of a certain householder who planted a vineyard, Matthew 21, 33 following, of a certain king who made a marriage feast for his son, Matthew 22, verse 1 and following, of a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods and later returned, Matthew 25, 14 following. In all these parables, the tertium comparationis, that is the third thing of comparison, meaning the, 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 the link between the story and you know, what the story stands for, is again and again to be found in that which the chief character in the parable has done, resolved, ordained, while the purport of all this is that God will act likewise at the coming of the kingdom. Okay, so uh, that, I think, is an understandable. And again, that's generalized, of course, from observing parables, and not necessarily true of every one. B, self-reference in parables. Many parables are at least partly about parables. We've seen that with the parable of sower. It's true, I believe, of the parable of the mustard seed. 
because it's a parable of the kingdom, and parables are the teaching of the kingdom, but their meaning becomes more manifest. A uh, parable of the banquet, oh, that's a good one, Luke 14. And the, I, it's somewhat ironic, I think, that when Jesus, well, it's Jesus, the whole business of Jesus' teaching isn't he inviting people to come to the banquet of the kingdom. And isn't he doing that through this very parable and the people are sitting and listening to the parable and they're not responding by coming to the feast. I mean, the thing is, uh, it's ironic, you see, because the, here's the message, come for the feast is now ready. And he is basically giving that message in the giving of the parable. You see that basically the parable is acting itself out, you see, or at least a portion of the parable is happening right before their eyes. The parable of the wicked tenants, right after Jesus has told it, the, the scribes and the Pharisees plot to kill him, which is exactly what he said they would do in the parable. So it is, look for that. I mean, I don't think this has been attended to probably as much as it should be that, that um, these parables tend to encapsulate sometimes the very thing that Jesus is talking about is being acted out in his actual giving of the parable. Okay, next one, colorful details. C, not, this is a, again, a dialoguing with this problem that we're wrestling with all the way through of what do you do with the details? Not every element in a story, a parable story, needs to correspond precisely, rigorously, in one-to-one -one fashion to some symbolic meaning. For instance, the oil and wine in Luke 10, 34, Parable of Good Samaritan. Because if you did, you'd have to do as Augustine did, and the oil stands, I forget what he said, but it doesn't even make much sense. If it stands for anything, you'd think it would stand for the Holy Spirit, right? Because there's association with the Old Testament. Well, that's not what he says. But you need something for the wine, too, you see. That, um, so it is, it is difficult to, to claim that the oil and wines have distinct symbolic meaning. Does that mean that they don't mean anything? They are what I've called colorful details, although that phrase is probably not very good because it tends to depreciate them. I mean, it tends to mean they're dispensable. I don't think any detail is dispensable because every detail will contribute in some fashion to the story as a whole, or it wouldn't be there. So what do the oil and wine do? They are one, they're part of the developing picture of just how many ways the Samaritan cares and shows neighborly love, right? So they reinforce, every detail is reinforcing that, but it doesn't mean, you see, you can say that the thing has a function without saying that its function is to have a distinct symbolic meaning. Okay, very definite difference there. So we keep asking, even about the details, what do they contribute? But the answer may be they contribute by being colorful details, which doesn't mean that they're dispensable, right? But they somehow will reinforce or, you know, draw people in or give them a more vivid picture. You know, they will do something. The 100-fold increase in the harvest in Luke 8.8 why 100-fold? Well, a large number, right? So you needn't sort of say that there has to be some exact 100-fold increase in 
what? Meaning or understanding or whatever it is. Fourth, D, 2D, the two evidence rule. The two evidence rule is to be used for determining the significance of details. Now, what's that mean? <laughs> this is my own invention. <laughs> the two evidence rule is to be used for determining the significance of details. And this so-called two evidence rule, that might, that's my own term for my own little thing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and let me give you, explain what the rule is, this, and then try to comment on it. The rule is this. Each element in a par particular parable that has a distinct symbolic meaning that stands for something else, like oil and wine, except do they stand for something else, right? That's the question. To, to demonstrate, to be convinced that they do stand for something else, you must have two evidences for that something else. <laughs> and this is not a very elegantly formulated rule. I mean, this is my own doing, so you gotta bear with me. <clears throat> I'll show you how it works, though. And we'll talk about, you know, this, the question is, is this a good rule, right? Maybe it's not, right? But first understand the rule and then decide whether it's a good rule or not. So um, preferably one of these evidences <clears throat> will be what I call a constructional evidence. That's my term again. I'm sorry for this kind of stuff. What do I mean by that? Namely that this thing plays a role in the literal story analogous to the role that it plays in the symbolic story, right? So you got a shepherd and a hundred sheep and one lost sheep, right? And then on the other second level, you've got God or Jesus as the representative of God and you go have sinners and you have 99 righteous, supposedly righteous. Well, the lost sheep must correspond to something lost and found. In other words, it must play a role analogous to the role in the story. It must fit into the second level of meaning. You can't say the one lost sheep stands for, I don't know, stands for good works, right? That doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit into the story, okay? It's got to, it's got to fit coherently into the story to make sense as its role the symbolic meaning, its role in the symbolic story has got to be analogous to the literal role in the literal story, if you will, right? Okay, that should be one evidence. And the second evidence should be either class, what I call class evidence or feature evidence. What do I mean by that? Class evidence is evidence based on use elsewhere in scripture or elsewhere in this story or another parable. So, for instance, we have sheep elsewhere in the Old Testament used as a figure for the people of God and the people of Israel, right? And that would be one evidence that sheep in the parable of the lost sheep stands for a lost person then, but from the house of Israel preeminently, you see? Sheep standing for people is a regular thing 
in the Old Testament. That's class evidence. Or, finally, feature evidence, simply that the features of the thing are like the features on the symbolic level. So Herod is like a fox, for instance. You see, features of fox, of cunning, and, and so on, analogous to features of, of Herod. Now, that's a little less clear. But, at any rate, what you're looking for is two evidences of two different kinds, hopefully. That's going to be the most convincing. If you've got them coming from different directions, one, say, from its role in the story, and one from its usage elsewhere in Scripture, and the two things point to the same conclusion, then it's reasonable to conclude the conclusion is correct. Now, watch how this works. We're going to be out of time. Well, you know, th think about it, and, and maybe I can use one example, right? With the parable of the lost sheep, it's clear. It's easy, because you say sheep elsewhere in Scripture stand for people, right? People of God especially. And that's, a, that's a, what I call class evidence. And then in the parable itself, the idea of the sheep being lost and then found is analogous to sinners and the tax collectors. They're lost, but Jesus, they repent and they're found and they come to be reconciled to God. It fits the, as a story, okay? So that's constructional evidence. That's two evidences, therefore it's, that's right. Okay, we've got solid evidence. Now that's easy, right, because uh, uh, it's evident to most people before you even start. But uh, Augustine says, oil in the parable of the Good Samaritan is the comfort of good hope. Well, you might say there was one evidence that it's the Holy Spirit because there's elsewhere in Scripture an association between oil and the Holy Spirit. That's only one. It doesn't really even fit into the construction of the story as a second evidence. Good hope, there's almost zero evidence. Except, oh, there is association. Yeah, Isaiah has oil of gladness at one point, but that's, that's rather a stretch, you see. Even as one, that's about a third of an evidence. <laughs> so maybe these things have to be weighed. But anyway, we're out of time. I'm not concluded with this, but we'll come back to it next time, discuss, is this a good... Um, is this a good criterion? Uh, the two evidence rule. Well, uh, look, recall briefly where we, are, where we are. We're going through maxims for biblical interpretation of parables, uh, and that's under H, Roman number three, H, and uh, typical strategies of parables, maybe the two evidence rule doesn't belong under this, but you'll see uh, anyway. And the two evidence rule, as you recall, is each element in the parable that stands for something else, that is, functions as a symbol of something on the second level, each such element must have two evidences for it, preferably one of a constructional kind, a constructional evidence, that is, that um, the role of the literal element in the literal story is genuinely parallel to the role, that is, the structural role of the symbolic thing it symbolizes in the symbolic story. Uh, that's one evidence, and the other evidence must either be a feature evidence, that is, that there are features analogous between the two levels or 
what I call a class evidence, that is, that elsewhere in Scripture or in the same story, this particular feature is used, uh, is correlated um, with its symbol in the same way. <coughs> and I might add to those that uh, rule this additional qualification that the analogies that I'm talking about and the evidences that I'm talking about should be what the um, anthropological and linguistic terminology has called emic analogies. You know about the etic emic distinction. Uh, etic, it's a, think of an anthropologist going to a new tribe. Etic is either his initial impressions or his formulation, final formulation, from outside against the background of a sort of a universal uh, classification of all cultures. Whereas emic is the insider's point of view, which he has to begin to understand. Okay? Now, you can have, the terminology was originally invented in linguistics, but has broader application. I'm not using it in the technical linguistic sense, but in the sense of what does it look like to first century Palestinian audience and then a little more broadly, broader to Luke or Mark or Matthew's audience. Does do these evidences, would they make sense? I'm not saying that they'd consciously reason it through, but would they make sense that is within inside the culture and linguistic and social systems? <clears throat> uh, that context, okay? Now, I gave uh, one example of that, but let me give another. Uh, Luke 12, 45 to 48. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and maidservants to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place for the unbelievers. That servant who, do, who knows his master's will and does not get ready or do does not do what his master wants, will be beaten with many blows, but the one who does not know and does things deserving of punishment will be beaten with few blows. Okay, now, the, again, an easy example would be, who does the master stand for, if anything, right? And one evidence would be a class evidence, that's in fact maybe the easiest one to start with, that is, that elsewhere in Jesus' parables, the master frequently stands for God or sometimes for Christ himself as the representative of God and as we know in terms of later revelation as God himself, second person of the Trinity. So that is, the, the master then, and of course that isn't unique to parables, right? It also goes back to the Old Testament as well. So that is a strong class evidence, but then you ask, what role does the master take in the story? The master holds the servant accountable, and uh, in case he's not faithful, he punishes him. And the role of punisher, right, would belong to God as well. So in terms of the role in the story, now that's constructional evidence then, the role in the story, belong, it fits, it makes sense for God then to fill this particular role analogous to the master in the story. Now, what about verse 45? The servant begins to eat and drink and get drunk. 
All right, the eating and drinking. Class evidence for that is the uh, idea of final feasting in the kingdom of heaven. Does that fit the construction? No, it doesn't, you see, right? Because this is uh, a disobedient feasting. Well, that's an ev that's a occasion where you've got one evidence, but really you've got other things that are counting against that, right? So now those are very simple and elementary cases, and I don't want to pretend that all the cases would be equally uh, easy. Now, what about this? Um, the fact is, this two evidence rule, as far as I know, it's not in the literature unless one of my students <laughs> graduating from the seminary has written an article about it. Uh, I've never heard it discussed, never seen it discussed. I haven't kept up on the literature, though, not really. There's an immense blossoming of literature on variables in particular. But is it any good? My desire here is to grope after uh, a, an explicit formulation of what I think native speakers and people emic to a culture in that sense, what they instinctively do. They're not going to reason it out and say, now do I, you know, right? They're not going to have all this stuff consciously in their minds. But it's an analysis after the fact, right? So it's no better than the real thing, right? It can't legislate for parables or anybody. But it's, in fact, a description that is groping after what I think real people actually do. That is, when they're not carried away by some hermeneutical scheme, right? Because there's always the possibility, right, of bringing in uh, you know, other things and, and going in other directions. 